You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Kai Hassan, co-founder and creative director at Portal A. Kai, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad we get to do this. I saw that you started your career, like many other folks that I know in the digital media space, at Current TV. Yeah. What was that early experience like? Yeah, it was, um, it was really interesting. So I had just come back from a, uh, a year-long trip in Asia, which was um, sort of a, a chance to make some content with the guys that ended up becoming my partners. And we all got separate jobs, and my job was at Current, and I was there for about a year. And so this was um, 2007, 2008, and Current TV was really interesting. It was sort of a, uh, it was really attractive, I think, to a lot of people who are interested in uh, technology, video, the intersection of those two things. And you had a lot of really interesting people working there. And if you kind of follow their career path, a lot of them are doing really cool stuff in our space now. But Current TV was really trying to figure it out. I'm not sure they ever quite did. They kind of had a license to experiment a ton, which was very interesting. And you had this kind of strange group of people, a lot of 20-year-olds, 20 to 30-year-olds who were very fluent in uh, digital, uh, really understood social media. And then you had executives who were good at leading companies, but actually had no idea what social media was because, I mean, now sort of it's pervasive. Everyone kind of understands it, I think. But back then, if you were uh, in your 40s, you just didn't grow up with it. So it was very foreign. So there was a lot of conversations about, you know, what the heck is this? Uh, what What is Twitter? I remember there was a program within Current to sign people up on Twitter. And I was part of that. And I had to go around to our different offices, sit down with people and sort of convince them to do it. So what was your pitch in the early days? Why should they join Twitter? The pitch was basically that you need to foster your own audience. I mean, it's pretty similar to what you know the pitch might be now, but if you're on television, uh, you are a brand, and if you're on Twitter, you have a chance to kind of build that brand, and it was good for a current business, and it's ultimately, my pitch to them was it's going to be good for you professionally. And so for a lot of the talent on the show who didn't understand it, we actually tweeted for them for the first few months until they got into it, and then you, know, you get hooked, so... Um, that was really interesting. But yeah, Current TV, it, it was a crazy place. And I, I, I look back on it fondly. We were making amazing things, but I also look back on it and it was a great lesson in sort of management, a lesson in how a vision that's kind of a positive one uh, might not work out if you don't have like really solid business structure around it. So um, yeah, it was a great year, but eventually I just, I had to leave. Current TV was this fascinating chapter in the early days of online video, but I'm also curious to hear about your trip through Asia the year before. Tell us more about that experience. The main thing, we, I just didn't have a job out of college. No, I mean, well, that's kind of true, actually. I, I grew up loving film, loving video. Um, I went to the East Coast for school and studied uh, a film, but also like literature. It was film theory. We, you know, I wasn't making a ton of stuff. And this idea of going to Asia with uh, good friends just seemed 
Like this is the chance. So we bought a uh, GL2, which was a mini DV camera, an amazing camera. And we went out there and we started making basically sketch comedy on the road. We were in Vietnam to start. We would bring in Vietnamese people and have them play actors in our sketches. And so, you know, you'd watch a video. It would have all the trappings of a uh, travel video. You get to see the locations. You get to see what the food looks like. You get to uh, hear the local dialect. We made these really cool videos, and we just kept the travel going. We bought motorcycles. We went to Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, China, Mongolia. We ended up selling these videos we made to um, Lonely Planet, which had just been bought by the BBC. So they had sort of a license to like, go out and buy a bunch of content that we could then maybe turn into shows. And so they looked at the comedy stuff we were doing, and the BBC uh, started pitching it around as a television show. And that was very cool. It, nothing happened from it, but it was kind of that first taste of, you know, oh, we might be good at this. And while we were actually on the road and just before, we also started making our first viral videos. Where were you posting this content at the time? We posted... Um, our viral videos we posted on YouTube, and this was uh, 2006, and our show, our sketch show, we were like, I mean, this was, in retrospect, not smart at all. We just put it on a website and hosted it on QuickTime, you know, a QuickTime video player. But the viral videos we did were they were on YouTube, and they, they went big. And back then, if you got a million views on a video, you were on CNN, you know? It was, like, very newsworthy. So we kind of realized at that point that... Uh, we had a knack for making videos that could go really big. And, and when you, again, when you do that, you're on CNN and sort of all our friends and family were, you know, giving us props for that and it felt good and it's something we just kept doing. So I think um, it was a really good experience for us and it was kind of an, it, it has been and will be a North Star for all the work we continue to do because that sense of joy and adventure we don't really want to lose it. Actually, an employee at uh, Portolais was making fun of me the other day. They were like, you always bring up that motorcycle trip. And I was like, well, that's because it's just, it was the best, you know, so. That's awesome. And how did you get in touch with Lonely Planet and the BBC? How did that even come about to sell the show? Yeah, they were, they were really smart. They had a contest. Uh, they just did a call out. They were like, hey, we upload your videos. And if you win this contest, you're going to get a check in the mail. And, uh, we didn't win the contest, but then they kind of contacted us afterwards and they were like, we want to buy these videos. So, um, yeah, I think they were just, they were really smart. They were, you know, back then everyone wanted to come up with a, um, sort of a competitor to YouTube. Uh, and people thought, and I think platforms thought they could host their own videos. Um, you know, and so what Lonely Planet was doing was we're going to go the travel video route. By the way, that's what current TV was doing as well. They were, hardcore competitor with YouTube when I was there and they realized that it's not going to work. We lost. And, and what was interesting, I thought was one of the biggest, the differences between current TV and YouTube was that YouTube, you could post anything on YouTube and they were going to just deal with it. If it was, um, if it, IP issues, whatever, like post it, we'll deal with it. Current TV, their business strategy was you have to be a certain level to, be on the site. So you will have to submit, an editor will go in and decide whether it was at that level. And that just clearly didn't work. Um, and so I, I always find that kind of interesting that I was the decision point and led to YouTube being just gigantic and current kind of going away. 
Well, and that was the case for a lot of other early video platforms, right? Break.com, I think about eBombs World, right? All these kind of destination sites in the early days that were making a run at being the premier online content destination. And ultimately, YouTube won out, one, because they got acquired by Google early and had the resources to, to sustain that growth, but also because they did have that, you know, welcome everyone mentality of this is a place for premium content. And in the early days, it was mostly pirated TV content, but, you know, original premium content eventually appeared on the platform, as well as, you know, people's kids' videos and pets' videos, the day-to-day stuff. Yeah, and that... that- ethos was what made YouTube so big. And now you, you look at 2019 and they still cling to that. And I think it is important because it is sort of a utility, right? The fact that you can just upload any video there, but it kind of also creates issues, issues around, well, what happens when YouTube wants to pay for premium content and then uh, have people pay for it? You know, who are they going to work with now? Are you still democratizing video? Uh, so it's just an interesting thing to see. And I remember back then there were some services like uh, Rever, who the whole business proposition there was we're going to split uh, 50-50 uh, the revenue with you from the ads. But uh, YouTube didn't get on board till I guess, 2010, maybe. Um, it was a little bit uh, after. YouTube throughout its history has kind of struggled with this, you know, are we a premium content destination? Are we UGC? And back when it started, 2005, 2006, UGC was a dirty word, right? Today, that's the foundation of how YouTube, Facebook, Instagram monetize. So, you know, whether it was the original content initiative where YouTube was funding $100 million to create channels, most of which were traditional Hollywood types or celebrities that they were trying to get to create content, which ultimately didn't succeed as much as the homegrown talent on YouTube, or if it's their efforts to launch YouTube Red, which becomes YouTube Premium, and the same issues with Music Key, they've kind of struggled to find that delicate balance between what is traditional premium quality entertainment versus what is homegrown YouTuber-driven content. Yeah, I... It's, the, the term UGC is really interesting because a, a lot of what you see now is UGC, obviously. But in my world, I don't know about yours, but like I never hear that term anymore. Uh, and I think that term still is really dirty. Back then, I remember uh, there was a company that started. Um, it's called Urgent Media. It was a company started by people at Current TV who were sort of my peers and their whole business proposition was UGC done right. And basically, it was fake UGC. Um, it was smart. Like, you're running a UGC campaign? Well, we'll make sure people submit really good videos on your UGC campaign, right? And uh, and actually, that, that model worked for a little bit. And But then UGC became kind of old hat, and people weren't paying for it as much. And, you know, there's different types of models. And so then... Uh, I don't. I think urgent media just didn't work out. Well, I want to hear more of your story, but before we move on, I'm fascinated by the fact that when you're traveling throughout Asia, you are doing sketch comedy through a travel lens or in this travel format. What do you think about YouTube as a destination for sketch comedy over the years? Because I, you know, I, it makes me think back to things like Derek Comedy or you've got Lonely Island, and so you you see these sketch comedy groups, some of which start on YouTube and then transition to traditional media. And then you've also got these traditional media players who now also see YouTube as an outlet many years later as like, oh, well, if Andy Samberg and his friends are already successful in traditional media, but they look at YouTube as this other creative outlet. How has that morphed over time? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, it, it kind of depends on where you're coming from. So if you, I think that if you're someone who makes sketch comedy, 
and that's what your passion is. I think YouTube is and still can be a great place to show off what you can do, especially when you compare it to what Funnier Die used to be. So I enjoyed Funnier Die. I used to watch Funnier Die a lot. I laughed. It was great. But I do think that there was a very particular voice on Funnier Die that everyone was, a lot of people were adopting. And it kind of, in a way, stifled sort of new types of comedy where, whereas on YouTube, a lot of the people who are doing sketch comedy, I found were like doing really, really interesting, weird things, uh, weird types of humor, like uh, Kyle, for example, Kyle Mooney, Good Neighbor. So if you could consistently build a portfolio of sketch comedy, you could gain you know, somewhat of an audience and people could see what you're doing and be like, oh, you are really, actually really talented. And then you could go on to do other things. From my point of view, though, in my shoes as someone who works with brands and does more of a one-off, one-off campaigns, right? Um, I avoid sketch comedy like the plague for a couple reasons. One reason is that, you know, we're trying to make what we dub, you know, breakthrough content. Right. When we make something, people have to notice it and see it. And so in order to make breakthrough content, like one lens to think about is you need to make something that is very something. We you know, very sentimental, uh, very funny. Uh, sketch comedy can be very funny. But I, t I tell my team, be careful of very funny because very funny is ridiculously hard. It's really hard to do. I mean, you have to work with great people and those great people have to do great work. And especially if you're just trying to do it on one video, you're gonna, we're gonna make this one video be breakthrough to say we're gonna make it very funny is really scary. And so we tend to not make sketch comedy for our branded content. I also think that uh, the skill set of a lot of the people we work with doesn't lend itself to scripted. Um, some people, yes, but a lot of the people we work with they're better suited for unscripted models. And so, yeah, we shy away from sketch because of that too. Sketch comedy also went through a huge transformation when Vine was released, right? Vine seemed like this platform that was harnessed for this short form, quick sketch approach that later found its way to YouTube after Vine shuts down. But it, it seemed like this whole new generation of influencers and creators emerged from Vine because it gave them this new creative format. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Um, I think about Vine a lot and sort of when it first came out, thinking like six seconds, that's such a weird, arbitrary number. And now I can't imagine it any other way, right? Uh, even though Vine isn't around, you have six second spots, right, on YouTube. And it just, it, that amount of time just kind of makes sense and it just feels right. And when you're doing creative for it, uh, yeah, I agree. The, the, the mindset of sketch really does work for six seconds. Uh, and you can do things that are really creative and fun. So after Kern TV, you go on to co-found Portal A, which is a digital studio specializing in original productions and branded content. What motivated you to start the business? Well, so I've always been very entrepreneurial. I started another company in college uh, that, you know, completely flamed out, but uh, kind of got um, me more interested in starting companies. Tell us about that. So that was called uh, Real Blogs. I started it my junior year uh, with my roommate. We saw that there were blog networks that were doing really interesting things. Like one of the blog networks was uh, Gawker Network. And I think we, I remember reading an article where it was like, the valuation of Gawker Network is $15 million or something. It was like, wow, this is a real thing. 
So we were thinking, well, why can't there, if there's a blog network, why can't there be a, a vlog network? And so we put together, um, we went out and produced and got our friends to produce a bunch of vlogs. Back then, the word vlog was just another term for like web series, I guess. And the idea was they were all going to be interconnected and pushing to each other. And this was back in 2005. It was funny. We had this big press release. We don't know what we're doing. We have this big press release where we're introducing our new company, Real Blogs, and we say, for the first time, like professional vlogs or something like that. And we pissed off just so many people because of this press release. Um, a lot of whom were in New York. There was a sort of a vlog community back then, and a lot of them are my friends now. But it was a really bad way to start. And uh, it was a great experience and actually started collaborating with uh, my partner, Nate. Uh, he started writing scripts for one of our shows, and that was really fun. And so uh, that was a good first taste. And then Portal A, we knew that and we still believe and we know that uh, digital video is powerful and it is the next thing up. Um, and to not start a business in that space or not want to figure it out for us guys who made videos, it just felt like, wow, this is just our chance. All we need to do is we need to just quit our jobs, have enough money to buy some cameras. We got our, our first gig. Uh, it was a SAT tutoring company it was going to pay us to make 500 videos called vocab videos. They were basically uh, flashcards for the SATs uh, that taught you uh, words. 500 videos for, I think it was $50,000. It was enough money for uh, two guys at the time to uh, eat cup of noodles for six months and have an office and uh, try to find our next job. We didn't really have a business model. We were just experimenting really. And the company clicked when our third partner, Zach, jumped on board. So my two partners, Nate and Zach, we all went to kindergarten together. Um, so we know each other and there's a trust there. Uh, but what really clicked when Zach and uh, Nate, we all joined forces was we all had different roles. And that's always something I tell other entrepreneurs is the roles are really important. And Zach was very um, business minded. He cares a lot about the content we make, but he also cares a lot about running a great business. And for me and Nate, we were more on the creative side. And so um, once the three of us were together, we stopped experimenting and we started thinking about really doing this business thing. And what's kind of funny is we saw branded content as sort of a side thing. We used to call them gigs and we used to just do work for, okay, oh, uh, Gap wants us to make something. We did something for Jawbone early on. But those gigs started paying and the money was real. And it really then soon became our central focus. And I think... It was a combination of, hey, we're good at making viral videos, but we're also professional enough to interface with brands and marketers and kind of convince them that they can trust us to make something. So those two things combined kind of led to, I think, uh, a lot of our early work. Um, and then we just kind of went from there. Um, so now we're, we got two offices. Uh, San Francisco and LA, which kind of is part of our DNA, I think, those two two cities. Uh, we're about 40 employees. And uh, yeah, and branded content is our main thing, but we also do originals as well. And in the early days, it sounded like you 
from the outset, you wanted to create these original productions. You had this creative inspiration. You wanted to produce videos for the web. And then you'd go off and you'd do these gigs to kind of keep the lights on, pay the bills. But quickly realized, hey, this is a big business opportunity. This should be the focus of the company is we're going to create really incredible branded content. And that'll also give us time and allow us to create these original productions, one of the most successful of which was White Collar Brawler. Yeah. So I want to ask you about that because... In June 2010, you created, wrote, and edited this show, which is basically a documentary about two lifelong friends who train to become amateur boxers, right? And the truly amazing thing about the show is that you cast yourself as one of the brawlers. <laughs> so what inspired you to create that and ultimately star in the series? That show came out 2010, 2011. We were sort of, this was at the end of sort of this experimentation phase of our company. And we were running out of that initial 50 grand that I mentioned. And um, we were kind of almost thinking, let's go out with a bang, thinking that it's, this company thing is really hard to do. Uh, so let's go out and do something amazing. So I, I had months earlier walked into a gym uh, I've always enjoyed martial arts and boxing and things like that, and I'd never done it. But I had walked into a gym, and there just happened to be a bunch of white-collar people who were cheering on two of their friends who were boxing. And I asked, what's going on here? And they said, well, uh, you know, we've been training for the last few months. Like, this is our graduation. And I was like, oh, so graduations, you get to fight each other. And it's like, yeah. And they, there was like this they were really happy. They were just really happy. And uh, this was around a time, and I think it still exists, when you know more and more you're sitting on computers. Uh, the type of interaction that you have with other people is through email. And it just felt like there wasn't a lot of uh, human contact. And, you know, being a, a, a guy and my partners being guys, we were always thinking about, like, what is masculinity in this new century? And so we were kind of decided to do this experiment, which was we are going to you know walk away from our jobs, basically you know, not produce, not not think about gigs for a second, and we're going to learn how to box, and we're going to document that, and then we're going to put into practice everything we've learned about how to make good videos and how to run a cool show. So what we did with White Collar Brawlers as we learned to box the videos came out in real time. They weren't live, but they came out the next day. And one thing that was cool is we, we kind of created this uh, movement. Uh, so if you watch the first couple episodes, you know we're jogging through San Francisco early in the morning. Uh, we're training, and then you watch 10 episodes later after we've gotten an audience. Now some people are jogging with us. People know where we're training in the morning near the water. They come out, and the fan base gets bigger and bigger. And we're actually thinking about that 0.01% of viewer who wants to get so engaged in a show that they'll actually show up and start being a character on the show. You know, so that was really fun for us. And we ended up monetizing, not through ad revenue or anything like that. We um, monetized because we sold a thousand tickets to our live event, a bunch of which were VIP tickets that cost, you know, 60 bucks. And then a regular ticket costs like 25. But these people showed up to watch a boxing match between two people who had never boxed before just because we told a cool story. And uh, yeah, it was a really cool experience. And we ended up selling that idea to Esquire TV and they ran a few seasons of the show on, uh, on television. It's a different show on TV, but it was, it was a good taste of sort of how you could put something online to start 
kind of prove a concept and then get it over to television as now so many people have done. And how did you actually learn to box? Did you hire a trainer? Were you focusing on the nutrition element? What were you doing to physically prepare yourself for these fights? I, I consider myself a, a normal guy, uh, not super athletic, not someone who's like a health junkie or anything like that. But I, I like playing sports. But I always wondered what, what would it be like to be able to point to a single moment in time and say, this is when I was my most fit. And so we, we, I, we kind of penciled, this is going to be that moment. And we, ha we had a boxing trainer. We had a fitness trainer. We had a um, nutritionist. And we were training basically six, seven hours a day. I would be running you know, six miles a day. Uh, then have a couple hours of boxing and then some days we'd go to the beach and do fitness training I mean, it was it was so much and for me. I had to gain weight. So I was eating a ton of protein It was kind of like um, going from being a normal dude snapping your fingers and having the lifestyle of a professional athlete and you know My definitely my body would like, bear could barely take it barely take it um, and the funniest part was I had to take the footage and edit it, you know, in real time that night. So I would spar with someone. That person would kick my butt. I would then have to take the footage and edit and watch myself get my ass kicked and then have to edit it. And it was so, it was just so psychologically tough, especially because we were trying to craft a narrative, right? And, and like character arcs. And I was looking at myself and was like, I have to be better at boxing at this point. Otherwise, this is going to be the same episode of me just getting my butt kicked. And did you ultimately improve what happened in the final fight? Yeah, I improved. I ended up losing in the final fight. Uh, sadly, it still sticks with me. My partner, Nate, beat me. Yeah, it was so, it was so crazy. It was a close fight, but he, he had me by, by about 20 pounds. And if you've ever boxed, uh, the 20 pounds goes a long way. Yeah. Do you still box? Have you kept up with it? No. I, as soon as that show was over, I, was, I just stopped. I think I just got burned out. It's not, it's not for me, but I respect boxing now just so much. It, it really is like learning uh, a dance where you hit people. <laughs> so in addition to getting your first SAT prep customer and shooting this video and then your back's up against the wall, you're like, let's go out with a bang. We're going to create this amazing series, which goes on to become a television show. What was the hardest part of being a first-time founder? I say this to people occasionally, but if you're if you were to line up three people and you say, um, "All right, you're gonna have to guess which one's gonna be successful," uh, you have one person here who's really really talented, really skilled. You have one person here who has all the connections, and then you have another person over here who's um, just perseveres. I'm just I'm gonna instantly pick the perseverance, right? Because entrepreneurship. For me, as we, we you know we bootstrapped our company, so we, no one just handed us anything. But for me, it was how do you fail over and over and over and over again, but not to the level where you die, right? So you just keep going. And I actually think Los Angeles is kind of a good uh, lens to look at uh, perseverance because basically, if you can persevere, you you show up in LA and there are it feels like a million people just like you trying to do what you're doing. But every year they're a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less. Um, and sure, new people are coming in. But what ends up happening is just naturally you move up, you move up, you move up. And all of a sudden the, you're looking around and 
the the hundreds of thousands of people that you like your your class of LA is now far fewer and they actually have bigger jobs and now everyone's propping themselves up. In a similar way, entrepreneurship, if you can outlast other companies, if you can manage to, you know, have business practices that are smart, really calculative, um, get you to the next year, you'll find that there can be just natural growth, right? Especially if you're able to keep the, your partners around. If your partners enjoy working with you, if you do good work, then the next year you'll have them and you'll find some new ones, just kind of naturally. And so I, what I found is that our company, Portal A, because we bootstrapped and because we were so young when we started our company, you know, like every entrepreneur, we just failed so many times, so many times. Um, and, and, and that was our biggest, uh, that was the thing that was in our favor, we, that we did that so much. So, yeah, I mean, that was hard. Mentally, it was really tough. I think you talk to just about any entrepreneur, they'll tell you about the stress levels, how hard you have to work the late nights and just like dealing with failure over and over again. It's very tough. What's your secret to it? How do you deal with failure? How do you deal with the hard times of being a startup founder? Well, I think there's, uh, there is a personality thing to it. I keep sort of uh, an even keel. It's hard for me to get too excited about something. It's hard for me to get um, too down about something. And I just really try to be logical about things. It really psychologically helps me. So in order to do that, you need to be invested in other things in your life. You have other passions. Um, making your business your number one uh, without anything else and then getting so emotionally tied to it. It's just really hard year after year um, to go through those waves of emotions. You get just so tired. So having something else, I think, was a key. I think that's great advice because if so much of your identity is tied to the success or failure of this one thing, it, right, it just raises the stakes to an unnecessary extent, right? It's great. You should be 110% dedicated to your business, but having the balance and the, you know, whether it's a community of other entrepreneurs or friends or family, whatever that surrounds you and having other interests, passions, hobbies, that's what helps kind of mellow out those harder times. Definitely. And, and when you're younger, especially, and when you first start that first company, your identity uh, externally is really tied to that. Like the way people introduce you, uh, when you, when friends talk about you or what is Kai doing, they, they're, they're looking at the company you started and is it successful or is it not? Um, it's really tough. We've had our shares of girlfriends and, uh, you know, uh, now my partners are married, but definitely the, our partners, when they did not get it, it was impossible. I mean, it just really couldn't work when they didn't buy in to this at the same level. Basically, you need to convince yourself as you're failing that you're doing the right thing and you have to almost fool yourself. And I think it really takes the people around you to support you in a way. Otherwise, it can be really hard. So you've worked in the digital and branded content world for more than 10 years now. How have things changed over time from business models and content strategy to distribution and monetization? Yeah, well, it's changed so much. I think that, uh, you know, just keying in on a few things. One is distribution and how you work with talent is, is maybe the biggest. Talent really has become distribution. Um, it seems obvious now, but it wasn't so obvious back then. In the past, if you wanted to guarantee some level of viewership, 
you were definitely paying for it and you know you were driving uh views to your video via ads and pre-roll etc and then that still is done for sure but now we are making videos that i'd say for the most part are getting their viewership because they live on the channel of a talent who has a huge audience and that changes the whole equation for good and bad the good is that it it takes some of the pressure off of the numbers game when you can say look this person gets an average of this many views if we do well we will be in this range if we don't do well we'll be in this range either way you'll be happy um that's great it also affords you the chance to work with some really cool people so that's awesome uh the negative of it though is you're sort of beholden to that talent's sensibilities that can be really hard. So before the challenge was, hey, let's make a really cool video that has a brand message, which is already extremely challenging. Now you have to make a really cool video that has a brand message that is in the voice of the talent that you're working with. So it's just another variable that makes it really, really hard. That audience has expectations. The good thing is in the last three to four years, when, when a lot of this influencer content first started coming out, audiences would sniff out branded content and just be like, oh, you sold out, this is crap. And now it's just part of the mainstream and it's almost like a, a moment of triumph when a creator starts working with a brand, the audience recognizes that like, oh, you're doing this full time now, you're making money, this is awesome, I wanna support you. So if you can, if you can make the right type of content, it can, can actually work for you. I, th I think that that might be the biggest difference because from my point of view, as someone who works on the creative side, that shift changed the way we work more than anything. What do you think contributed to that? Is it just a natural maturation? People get on board, they understand, okay, well, this is how the world works now, and, and we're going to accept this because we love the creators and the content they produce, and we realize they need to make a living? Or was there some other moment in time or some significant mental shift that, that made it okay for people? I think it was just that it became obvious that it was really effective, right? So end of the day, what are we trying to do? Um, if you're a brand, I'm trying to sell some shoes. You know, I want to get people interested in my beverage or I'm launching a new product, whatever. What's the best way to tell people that? So when it comes to online in digital, uh, you can, sure, you can serve someone an ad. Uh, you can sort of force them to watch it. I mean, not really, but you can try by running a pre-roll ad. But it's just so much more effective to tie your product in with a, a talent, an influencer that people actually care about, have them make something that's legitimately interesting and entertaining, and have them vouch for your product in a really, really authentic way. If you can do that, not easy, but it is just far more effective. And so I think brands realize that. And the talent who started building the, the following got to a professional enough level where they could start interfacing with brands that, I mean, here we are, you know? And so when you see it done right, it's, it's incredible. And when it's not done right, it's a train wreck. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, you know, this is 2019, we could have a conversation in a couple of years and things might be very different. Are there any specific examples you can highlight? Maybe share one piece of branded content that Portal A did that you're really proud of and also maybe something that you didn't do, but you're like, ah, it's such a great idea. I wish I'd done that. Some other example of a great maybe influencer and brand integration where it comes together and it works. 
Yeah. Um, a lot of examples. One, one thing we we did that uh, has won a bunch of awards. Uh, we did a, we've done a lot of work with Steph Curry, and we had a campaign for Brita, where we paired Steph Curry up with Rudy Mancuso, and we also uh, teamed him up with King Batch, who are two uh, influencers uh, really big on YouTube, and we made these hilarious uh, music videos sort of about uh, being roommates and having a Brita filter. It's it's really kind of stupid humor, but there was something magical about pairing a creator with a more traditional talent, that traditional talent willing to do some really funny things, and then making a great hero video, but also making all the other types of videos, social, you know, on Rudy's Instagram and Twitter, it's that all these things that kind of drove audience to different places, six second spots, um, especially. So that was something that I thought was, was well done and kind of a lesson in, again, how do you make breakthrough content? You, you gotta have something special. And in this case, it was, let's pair up two people that you wouldn't necessarily um, expect them to be together, but when they are together, it's freaking amazing. So that was that one. Uh, you know, the this isn't an influencer campaign, but my favorite piece of branded digital content ever was uh, Red Bull Stratus. Philosophically, what we talk about at Portal A a lot, and I think what the Red Bull Stratus thing does to the best level is um, we talk about, you know, when we're ideating, it's don't, don't think of a video that we want to make. Just think about what's something really cool, right? So Red Bull Stratos, you could take away the cameras and it's still a guy trying to set a world record by jumping off of like a thing in space. That is just objectively cool. And so then you think, okay, if we're going to do that, that's just cool. How are we going to cover it? What type of content are we going to make around it? And Red Bull Stratos was like, okay, well, this should be a live stream because this needs to be a tune-in moment, right? So let's put our cameras here and here and here. Let's have this PR strategy, et cetera. It all sort of builds off of a core piece of creative that has nothing to do with video itself. And so when we're thinking about stuff at Portal A, we kind of, okay, what is the core idea here that's just cool? So for example, we made something with a Glad uh, press and seal last year and this year where uh, we we were tasked with showing how effective press and seal can be, which is, you know, it's sort of like saran wrap. And what we did was we built an upside down kitchen where the food is held in with the saran wrap. And we uh, asked Hannah Hart to try and make a burrito uh, while suspended upside down, which again, you know, is really fun. And I would love to just sit there and see her try to do that. Um, once we came up with that creative, then we were like, okay, now how do we want to, you know, shoot this? Uh, what kind of videos can we make out of this experience that we've created? So uh, I always look back at Red Bull Stratus as sort of the tops. You mentioned doing the pieces with Steph Curry. And so I'm interested to get your take on this more recent phenomenon of traditional celebrities, whether they're actors, artists, musicians, celebrity chefs, athletes, right, coming on to a social platform like YouTube or Instagram uh, as a way to build audience. Well, I, have, I have a variety of thoughts on this, but I'm curious to get your take on why now that tipping point has occurred where that's, there's a greater interest for people to do that and they seem to be more successful on these platforms than they have historically been. 
one way to look at it is there was um, there there's been a lot of successes, like high profile successes recently, and I think when you see The Rock jumping in and doing some really cool stuff, and The Rock is like at the top of his game. When you see Will Smith jump in, arguably not at the top of his game, but it helps reboot his career. Uh, when you see Jack Black coming in and having a totally different style and it looks like really easy to do, but it's totally working, all of a sudden you're a celebrity. And you're like, why aren't I doing this too? I also think that it really clicks for athletes. And I think athletes, like why now? I think more than ever, athletes see the next chapter of their career being in entertainment, uh, executive producing shows. And so YouTube and digital, because they're already really good at Instagram, but um, YouTube becomes a way for them to cultivate a, a brand, prove something online while they're still playing the sport because it can be kind of uh, efficient, easy to do um, if you know what you're doing. And so more, you see more and more athletes getting into it. So you have these athletes like Steph Curry who has you know, 25 million Instagram followers, much less YouTube uh, subscribers, who's able to start creating content and get a following to just quickly move over and you can build something that's really cool. So like we, we work with Steph Curry and we make his YouTube content. And the first thing we did was we sat down with him and we're like, what are we trying to do here? And for him, it was like, well, you know, Steph is a premium uh, athlete who works with premium brands and wants to show that he can make premium content that could live not just on YouTube, but on Netflix, um, on HBO, etc. So when we went and we uh, designed the show for him, we made sure it was it was premium. It looked good that you could take it right off YouTube and put it onto other platforms. And that kind of proved something for Steph that now he's kind of building on that brand. So. I think that sort of building of brand for athletes just makes a lot of sense. And now, now we're in a great spot where um, just there's so many conversations around celebrities jumping in. It's kind of a, it's kind of an amazing thing, and especially for someone who creates. I think working with a celebrity who doesn't have a um, defined voice on YouTube. It's kind of an amazing thing. It's really fun to work on. Yeah. So I have a variety of theories I'd like to run by. You, you yeah. tell me if they pass the sniff test. Yeah. I'm wondering if there are other contributing factors that lead to this moment in time being significant for traditional talent. Let's stick with the sports example for, for one. And basketball, I know you're a big basketball fan. But basketball as a sport seems to have changed fundamentally over the past few decades. Or if you look at basketball in the 80s, it was much more of a team sport. And then you start to have these breakout superstar personalities. You got Michael Jordan, you have Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, LeBron James, right? All of these talent that kind of now carry a team. And so you have some teams that are driven or built around one superstar, right? If you watch the Houston Rockets play, it's how do we get the ball to James Harden? So I wonder if the sport changing and then also the fact that influencers are being successful in building personal brands that athletes look at this as a chance to say like, well, I need to build a personal brand too, because that's what's gonna lead to me having greater fan awareness and longevity in a career after basketball. I think if, if, if maybe athletes are also looking to examples in music and seeing, oh, look at what Jay-Z has done, right? And building a personal brand 
and that's taking his career beyond music. Yeah, I think, well, so I love the basketball um, thought that you just gave and how the game has changed. I think that basketball always, more than other sports, was one where their stars can pop, and it started happening more and more, obviously, in the 80s with Larry and Magic. Michael was the ultimate. If, if you had social media back then, you know, what would that have been like? Like if Michael had, if there's social media around Michael, would we have the gambling stuff? Would that have just popped off and been crazy? You know, so there's, it's just kind of interesting to think about that. But I do agree that the way the game is played now is a little bit more isocentric. And so you have this idea of you can win with a collection of stars. And now because of free agency, stars have even more ability to choose their future. So they're much more like individuals. So that that's really interesting. But I do think more than anything, what you're seeing is these athletes are 23 years old, 25 years old. That's like a big part of it is they grew up in a world where creating your own brand was the norm, right? When they were 15 years old and they started being the most popular person in their high school, they were on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just seeing how their the people they idolized did it, right? They saw Kanye, et cetera. And it was like, okay, this is kind of, this is a thing. This is cool. Influencers are cool. I look up to them and now they're super famous, super rich. And it's like, what am I going to do now? So it is just being a young person in a moment of time. I think that contributes a ton to it. Yeah. I think it's different when it comes to TV and film. And I think one of the biggest shifts that we've seen there is that, if you were a celebrity actor in the past, you were successful because of the strength of the studio marketing machines. And that still carries weight, especially domestically. But in order to be a big star today, you have to have a global fan base, right? For The Rock to sell a film that's gonna do well in China or do well in other significant international markets, people need to know who you are. And there's gaps between movies, right? You might shoot a lot in one year, 2019, but that's not gonna come out until whatever staggered release dates, 2020, 2021, 2022. And so to fill in the gaps in time of that content, the machine has accelerated, right? We've seen what's happened with news content. We've seen what's happened with media life cycles have accelerated in an era of social media. And I think that's having an impact on actors and how they think about their career and how they have to think about, for me to be a global success and carry international box office, I need to stay relevant in between projects. Yeah, well, I think so. And don't you think that it has become trendy um, to be a businessman or woman, to be an entrepreneur, to start a company, to have your own company? So Very much so. Right. Shark Tank, Silicon Valley. Exactly. Right. So even if you're not necessarily doing it on social media, if you're an actor who's very successful, like you have your production company and you are developing uh, content um, and you're going out and pitching it and you're going into the pitch room. Uh, to get that stuff sold. So you have your company already. And so, yeah, building on that brand, creating a company where you're front and center, making YouTube, social media content, building off of that, starting to develop bigger, long-form pieces of content that you can then sell to television and film. I mean, it all kind of adds up. And I think that uh, you, you said Jay-Z, but Jay-Z was one of the most, to me, prominent, huge celebrities who said, I'm a businessman. Well, and not even that. In his song, he says, I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man, right? Like, so he's thinking of himself as the business. And, and just the ethos, this thought behind entrepreneurship has shifted so fundamentally 
in the last generation or two that you went from having hustler go from a dirty word to becoming the ultimate aspiration. Oh, that person hustles like they're working really hard. The, the, so many young kids, especially now when I advise or I go back to USC and I speak to students, uh, entrepreneurship was not something that was on people's radar, was not thought of as a career path, as a, as a progression. It was not something that could necessarily even be taught. That was kind of the thinking maybe 30, 50 years ago. Now that is the ultimate dream of a lot of young people. They see it as a viable alternative to investment banking, to consulting, to these, you know, being a lawyer, a doctor, these huge professions. It's like, I want to be an entrepreneur. Right. And, and why? Part of it is that there's just so much money in it. Or the illusion of that, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you see, well, certainly, like, the, the cottage industry of venture capital has now become uh, this huge phenomenon. And you, you hear the stories. They're well publicized of the successes, right? And there's this huge survivorship bias because the media never reports on the failures. And a lot of this now youngest generation has not gone through a huge bus cycle, right? Like we we just kind of missed out on the dot-com bubble, but we were old enough at the time to be aware of it. And, and the older generation, our mentors lived through it. So through them, we have heard the horror stories of, you know, the original web 1.0, 2.0 era. But I think, you know, that hasn't quite happened for this next generation outside of maybe the 2008 housing crisis. I think there's, there's an over-glamorization of entrepreneurship in the media most of the time. And while it certainly is something that I encourage people for, it's not for everyone. You do have to have that risk tolerance and the appetite for doing something like this and the perseverance to make it happen. And I think that's not often portrayed when you watch you know, a movie like The Social Network. It's like, okay, sure, there was some hard things, but this, this person through sheer brilliance and perseverance was able to make this anomaly success story happen. And that's not the reality for most people. No, and and the company that I I'm running is just not like that. Because we have an office in San Francisco, we're surrounded, you know, by Lyft, Uber, you know, all these huge companies that you know a lot of people working there are now millionaires, etc. And we're here. We are. I'm an entrepreneur, but you know, we just want to run a good business. I'm not trying to, I mean, it wouldn't be the worst thing, but I really wasn't trying to get investment and then like get a 10 X payout and that's all that stuff. Right. I was, we weren't trying to grow super fast and have a kajillion employees and go public or anything like that. It was about let's, let's grow a really cool business where we can make work. That's really fun. And let's run this business well and be successful at it. Um, and yeah, try and make some money at the same time and just have a living and so, but when you're surrounded by all that stuff, it starts to, you start to think about it a lot and you start to have conversations where you're like, well, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing this? And so it can be tough. And, and so I, I do think that going back to like tips to young entrepreneurs, you do need a North Star. It's so important to have something that you can refer back to and you can adjust it. But I think that should be a moment when you do. It shouldn't be something that kind of just slips and then you realize, oh, I've been operating under a new North Star for the last two years. So if you have partners kind of articulating what that North Star is, knowing what it is so you're on the same page and then going out and doing it, so then when there are really tough decisions about your growth and whatnot, you can say, okay, let's look at that North Star and just, are we doing that, you know? Um, Having that North Star has been sort of like a calming thing when all these San Francisco companies especially are going up and down and up and down. 
and really honestly our industry as a whole you've seen so many companies come and go i agree wholeheartedly and i will get off my soapbox about entrepreneurship but i think i think it's so important to have that north star to know where you're going why you're here why you show up to do this in the first place and it shouldn't be chasing the paycheck or you know the the fame it should be you want to change the world for a positive reason you you can be attracted to entrepreneurship because of the lifestyle design element or the fact that you want to be your own boss those are those are great things but as a means of wealth accumulation entrepreneurship is not always the best bet as we get ready to wrap up here one of the other things i wanted to talk to you about is uh, another portal a claim to fame which is that you guys have created and produced the youtube rewind series since its inception in 2010. Now, things got pretty heated this past year as creators and fans used the video's release as an outlet for expressing their frustrations with YouTube and many of the platform's policy changes that year. What was that experience like for you having directed YouTube Rewind 2018? Well, so I actually did not direct YouTube Rewind 2018, but my involvement in it is, is as essential, honestly. I, you know, I creative directed it, but uh, I'm definitely your guy to speak on Rewind because I'm there from the very beginning, working on it, uh, creative directing it, et cetera. It was, a, it was a crazy experience. You know, I was getting tweeted at uh, by people and uh, letters written to me from classes around the world and people were really opinionated. One thing that was really interesting is that there was a realization that this video not only gets a lot of views, it gets a lot of views, but also people are really, really care about it in a really cool way. And as someone who has been working on it for a long time, to kind of see how much people cared was actually kind of an awesome thing because you can say, oh, well, we did some things right here that people actually care. It's kind of similar in, you know, not all aspects, but in some ways to this last season of Game of Thrones where people just care so much that when the season doesn't go exactly the way they want, it just lights the internet up and people are sharing all their opinions and it becomes sort of a meme to dislike something. And so with Rewind, I think that some of the most powerful moments was when I was hearing uh, you know, an eighth grader just making their case for why things should have been different. Um, we were definitely swept up into sort of a larger narrative, absolutely, um, that there's an issue that uh, YouTube is dealing with or trying to deal with uh, that doesn't seem to be totally solvable. And it kind of goes back to the democratization thing we were talking about at the very beginning. It also goes to brands. How do you do both at the same time? How do you create a safe platform when everyone's using your platform? There's just a lot of issues that are really hard to figure out. The YouTube honeymoon where everyone loved YouTube, it ended a long time ago. And now like people will not give YouTube the benefit of the doubt. And so if they misstep, uh, it's bad news. Um, and actually, it's not even a misstep. If they do something right, people at this point will assume it's wrong. They have to really prove something, I think, uh, and walk the walk. But... It was, it was really um, tough to create something in that atmosphere. And then for that, that fallout to happen, it was, it was definitely a moment and something that, you know, I think years from now, 
um, I will talk about how you know we made the most disliked video in the history of the internet <laughs> and how that has shaped kind of who we are uh, moving forward. Yeah, and what are the takeaways that, that you'll apply going into the next year's Rewind? The way I think about it is less about the next Rewind because honestly, I don't know what the next Rewind should or would will be, you know, or if there will be one. It's just not something that, it's not something I decide, but it's also uh, something that I haven't thought about much. But I do think about sort of the lessons that you learn from that and to apply to all your, all your work. You cannot shy away from certain things uh, and then not acknowledge that you have done so. So if you ignore things, in this case, things that are really important to a community, and then you don't even acknowledge that you did it, it's, a, it's the ultimate disrespect, basically. Um, and people will not have it. Um, they will think that you're not worthy of being mentioned. Uh, there, there is, there's a better way to deal with things that you can't talk about than just flat out ignoring it. And a lot of that goes to I think communicating with your audience, doing so before the video and doing it in really creative ways in the video so that you make it clear that you are doing this purposefully. You're not just ignoring something. It is really important to get the communities that you're trying to represent involved in the creative. So talking to those communities, bringing them into the office, hitting a whiteboard, listening, Sometimes you don't get the best ideas that way, but just the act of reaching out and being part of that community uh, becomes part of the narrative. And the video for Rewind is much bigger than just the release. You know, the, um, the trailer to the video was massively disliked, just massively disliked. After day three, I think, of the video's release, 98% of the dislikes of the video were people who hadn't pl pressed play on the video. 98% of the, the dislikes were people who went to the video and just pressed the dislike button. So there's just, there's just a much larger narrative than the video itself. Uh, and you have to be hyper aware of that. You kind of have to try to shape that narrative uh, with things outside the video. Anyway, there's a lot, and we could talk about Rewind for days. If you had to make three predictions for the future of the media space, what would they be? Three. Wow, it's hard to make one. Um, one thing is that um, MCNs, right? So that model is interesting. It didn't work out super well for, I mean, it worked out in a lot of ways. And then like right now where we stand, it's not the best model. I mean, um, a lot of the initial MCNs really had to move into you know, more of a branded space, figure that out. Um, but I see there being, this is kind of a weird prediction, I see there being more of a need for MCNs now than ever before. Or like there's a moment that I feel like s someone could step in and do something that's sort of really cool and kind of revolves around, it's similar to the celebrity stuff we were talking about. But if a, if a company could come in and really f work with interesting talent in a way that is more hand-holding than an MCN did in the past and really help to build a brand and we're producing content with those, those talent. I think there's a, a, the ability to create a really interesting network of talent that could be really powerful. And so it's you know, something that 
I certainly and, and my partners have been thinking about a lot. We we're never going to go into the MCN business ourselves, but I could see there being um, in the future sort of networks of these celebrities and new types of talent on YouTube that actually are powerful and are driving audience and allowing you to do things with brands that are much more interesting than just a single one-off video on a single yeah. channel. And I think we see some MCNs trying to do that, right? Studio 71 being a good example, Can Community doing some, some things like that as well. And the audience, uh, that was kind of their whole business models, will help these traditional celebrities build a social presence. They were maybe a bit too early, but uh, yeah, certainly folks have attempted it. So the comeback. Um, another prediction is that I think we're going to see more content, um, like a new, a new format. It's, it's not a new brand new format, but I think we'll see this format more and more with branded content, which is basically throwing events that are tailor made for content creation. So sort of like, uh, I mean, think about the, the museum of ice cream really, uh, it was really tailor made for Instagram, but you can throw an event and then invite the right people and let them create content off of it. So then the real creative aspect of it comes in the design of the event itself. So we've seen that before, but I think that's going to be more and more a go-to uh, format. Uh, whereas, you know, for my company, at least 2017, 2018 was really defined by working, a, a, you know, a unit would be working with three to five interesting creators, each one creating a video that would then connect back to each other. That was like the bread and butter unit. I think more and more this event idea could become a bread and butter uh, piece. One more? <laughs> no, I'll let you off the hook. But are there any other spaces that you're following closely? You know, are you what? What's something that you get excited about right now? What's something that you're kind of paying attention to? Like I mentioned before, extremely interested in the sports space. I feel like sports never quite clicked on YouTube. Um, sort of the go-to format uh, or genre for sports has been trick shots, which is cool, but doesn't necessarily scratch an itch for a sports fan, right? There's also a lot of, um, you know, ESPN will repurpose a lot of their content on YouTube and you can watch highlights and things like that. But we are doing more and more work with um, athletes and we're also working with leagues to figure out uh, YouTube strategies. And I think that it's just something that's so exciting for us to try to crack because for so long uh, we've worked on content that, uh, doesn't necessarily we're not necessarily in that vertical like I'm not I'm not a natural fan of makeup um, I know it's incredibly powerful we've done so much work in that space but to get to work in sports is just so fun and it's really um, it's really exciting like you were saying now is a moment when that the personalities of sports can kind of find a voice on YouTube what does the future hold for Portal A the Holy Grail uh, for Portal A, or one of them, was this idea that we could make our own content that was brand friendly, right? So as opposed to filling out RFPs or doing service work, uh, which we do and we do really well, I think um, we wanted to create original content that was uh, ultimately very brand friendly. We're starting to do that. It's it, it's hard. It's hard to find really good original content that's sponsored, I think. Uh, but you're seeing it more and more. And it comes at a time when if you look at a lot of um, companies, they now have a person or a department within the company who's in charge of entertainment. And it's really exciting. And so I think one direction for Portal A is to merge kind of 
where does our branded side of our business and our, the original side of our business connect? And what kind of really cool content can we make that's original but uses all those muscles that we have trained with to make good, great branded content? And I think that, that the, the upside of content like that um, from both an artistic point of view but also a business point of view is really high. So that we're going to be trying more and more to do stuff like that. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, knowing everything you know now, the lessons you've learned through your time at Current TV, Portal A, et cetera, what would you do? Honestly, I would be doing what I'm doing now, I think, because I personally love creating stuff. I love making things. And uh, the branded space has given me the opportunity to work on really big projects with healthy budgets, doing a very diverse set of work. It can become the, the business model of being a company that services brands can be really tough. The, the business model of year over year trying to find who your clients and projects are going to be, not necessarily having something you can just bank on is really tough. So I think that if I was to start a company now, I would be hyper-focused on trying to figure that piece out, having ownable IP, things like that. With that said, I wouldn't want to move away from being a branded, own, a branded company first, uh, which is something that I think has just given us so many opportunities. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy where I am, pretty happy with what we're doing. There's some core things that I'm still trying to figure out from you know, the entrepreneurship level, but, um, but yeah, really, really happy. Where can people find out more about you and more about Portal A? You can find out about Portal A at portal-a.com. And me, I'm, you know, I'm just around. I'm on Twitter. I'm not really on Instagram so much. I am, but not really. Uh, but my Twitter is Kai Hassan. So. Well, Kai, thank you so much for coming on the show. So fun to hear about your journey uh, as an entrepreneur, building a creative company, uh, and getting your take on the evolution of the digital media space and branded content over the past decade. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, James. This was really, really fun. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.